Hi, I'm Diana. And I'm Susanna. You're listening to Global Caveat. The podcast where we demystify global health. On today's episode, we'll be exploring the role of creative arts and storytelling in fieldwork. With guest Joey Ha, a data manager at BookTrust, a literacy organization. Hi, Joey. Thanks for joining us today and being our first in-person guest. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited. Um, Before we get started, can you give us a little bit of a background about yourself and where people can reach you at? Oh, yeah, of course. I am the daughter of a Vietnamese refugee, and a lot of my life has been um, growing up with that. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what you've done in cultural anthropology and international development? Um, any projects or anything mm-hmm. like that? Yeah, so my undergraduate thesis was based on the ability of hip-hop as a tool of empowerment. So it was really fun. I got to do some research in Cambodia, this organization called Tiny Tunes, and they basically use hip-hop to serve as a fictive kin for disadvantaged youth in Phnom Penh. My master's thesis was about storytelling as a method to mitigate mental health risks in Vietnamese refugees, particularly Vietnamese refugees in Denver, Colorado. And then in terms of international development, I spent a year in Malaysia being a community development officer in a rural-ish community called Sungai Sulo. It's in Johor Bahru, which is the south of Malaysia. And that was a lot of just talking to the community and seeing what needs that they had and trying to serve them. A lot of it was actually um, just teaching English, but we did some like community events and came together for some just parties and things like that. Recently, I am doing some work with literacy. So more like on a national scale as opposed to international. Great. So I think those are really interesting because at least for me and Diana, we're on public health or global Mm -hmm. health and it can be very science heavy and a lot of the work that we do when it comes to people's health we automatically think more of the sciences or people tend to I think I think there is this really beautiful side where the arts and the creative Mm -hmm. aspects are really important and can be very impactful yeah I mean if you even go back to the birth of global health really it's just a combination of various fields together so there's anthropology sociology Mm -hmm. medical fields so it's really encompassing of all of the different things and most people just associate with medicine now there's like a huge area that people seem to forget about frequently with anthropology and sociology Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and I think this time that we have together would actually be really insightful for people who may want to have crossovers or work in global health or maybe interested but they don't know Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm like that's the beauty of global health at least in my perspective is you can bring so many interdisciplinary teams Mm -hmm. to do this kind of work because you don't have a background in public health but it would be very common to see global health practitioners working with people like you who've done all this great work yeah absolutely I think health is a very complicated thing Mm -hmm. and to really tackle it you need to see it from multiple different angles like you can be a technically healthy person but then you have to talk about things like mental health like, and how do you measure how satisfied you are, how empowered you feel, which are just as important as your risk of diabetes, I say. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How have you seen that in, let's say, things like Tiny Tunes, the project you did in Cambodia? Yeah, so in general, in Cambodia is, I believe, one of the countries with the most NGOs per square mile or something of the sort. Wow. And a lot of them focus on basic needs, and that is very important because... 
everyone needs water and everyone needs sanitation and things like that. However, I think in general, they're not many that focus on whole body and mind type of holistic methods, which is really what drew me to Tiny Tunes. And also the fact that I have been involved with the hip hop community back in Denver. And for me, it was a very empowering experience. To see hip hop like in a way save these kids was just really interesting for me. Yeah, so the program used hip-hop as an initial draw and it didn't really focus on things like water and sanitation and things like that, but it focused on having a support system for these children, which is incredibly important for these type of children because a lot of times they are drawn into gang activities and a lot of uh, Tiny Toons students used to sell drugs or they used to be a part of gangs, just like living sort of a street life. But hip-hop was able to draw them because hip-hop comes from the street. So they could relate to it on that level. They come to it because it looks cool and it's like popular and there's friends that you can make. But among that, they also have these really great mentors and they have classes that teach like HIV AIDS prevention, Mm -hmm. um, how to use the internet and um, along with like hip hop disciplines like DJing, breaking, Mm -hmm. graffiti and things like that and um, emceeing. So it was overall a really great experience because it showed me how important having like a healthy soul is in that situation you can be provided with like the basic human needs but if you think about the Maslow's hierarchy mm-hmm. on the top of it I believe is self-actualization mm-hmm. and that's a lot that's, we don't usually focus on that but it's really important for a person to really truly reach in a state of empowerment yeah I love all of what you just said because I think oftentimes people forget yes people need basic needs but if there's no structure to maintain that it's mm-hmm. really hard for people to go beyond or like keep sustaining so I think it's really neat that you are drawing these kids in and building the sense of community with something that they can enjoy. Mm-hmm. And then through that, you create programs like HIV AIDS prevention. Mm-hmm. And that is educational and informative. And they're there. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're there because they love the hip hop. And yeah. then but everyone there is just invested in their overall growth. And then a lot happens when like they have struggles at home or anything like that. Like mentors will come out of their way to um, help out with that or make sure they're fed and things like that. It's really interesting. It's a bit of a tangent, but the founders of Tiny Toons were actually Cambodian-American, but they didn't have their citizenship. So they were actually deported from America all the way back to Cambodia, but they've never been to Cambodia before. They were actually born in Thai refugee camps. Um, But arriving in the U.S., they also had the similar problem of joining gangs and basically this desire to fit in, and that's what the gangs provided for them. And then so moving back to Cambodia, it was interesting to see that link and for them to also inherently understand how important it is for kids to have um, a group of people they can trust. So so what I love about it too is that it really is sort of this movement built by the streets, for the streets, and it's really authentic in a Mm -hmm. sense. Trust is super important in global health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, it's it's tough when you have like organizations coming in and like everyone is from America or Mm -hmm. the UK or Australia and there's no people from that beneficiary group on that team and then there's just a huge disconnect and just in general people not understanding the needs appropriately and like a lack of trust and uh, just things like that yeah Mm -hmm.
it's a huge problem with just organizations in mm-hmm. general. So many of them now are only just realizing how important it is to have people that actually make sense for the locations. Yeah. yeah. Just actually, like you were saying, like it's always yeah. like global north yeah, exactly. representatives showing up and not really understanding where they're dropping themselves into. And then like, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to help. It's like, but how are you going to help? I think it's yeah. very disrespectful. And this might be a bit extreme. I think it honestly comes from a place of privilege and of, of racism. Yeah. Um, like working abroad you see that there are these microaggressions that people will continue to propagate in the communities that they're working with and it's really upsetting I know a friend who was working with this person who did a lot of work in Uganda and Rwanda he's like the CEO of this NGO and he came back and he was really sick and he was like oh but haha it's not AIDS like oh it was some joke. yeah and then I, I get it I, you get it all the time in the field it's like really a big shame and I had this superior in Malaysia who um was German and they really liked her so they moved her up the ranks pretty quickly but honestly she was pretty racist she came to visit my site one of the first things is she talks to my volunteer who wanted to be placed in a aboriginal village and she was like oh look at the Chinese people here, they are having a ton of Chinese New Year celebration. They have so much culture. If you are placed in the jungle, they have no culture there. And wow. And I didn't then, even make that assumption. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> like, the people that work in the then. field are, yeah. there's a lot of, like, there's so much, like, racism and sexism in the field. It's really a shame because you would expect there not to be. And later she was looking at me and, like, observing my site. And she's like, you're doing so well. Like, these, your community loves you. And then I was like, thanks. And then she was like, I didn't expect you to. And I was like, okay, you could have just stopped there. (laughs) Um, But she kept pushing it. And then she was like, oh, this other person who visited you said that you were doing great. But I didn't really believe her because you're so young. You're just so young. So really what was coming out was her uh, assumption and her stereotype working with um, people that look like me. So Malaysian youth Mm -hmm. being incapable of doing good things for the community. And that was very painful to hear because you're working for this organization, but you don't think that the people you're serving are capable of empowering their own communities, that they need you. That's like a huge problem in the industry. Yeah. I think the idea and the romanticization of Mm -hmm. working in the field is people think it's great. People think that you learn so much. And I mean, the stories that you hear back is, wow, like I learned so much about myself. Mm -hmm. And it's still very centered on the individual. It's never like I've learned so much about this community or this culture. I'd love to figure out a way Mm -hmm. to like help in a way that actually makes an impact. I learned so much about myself. I'm a better Mm -hmm. person now. Like what actually made you useful in this community Mm -hmm. right not just like them teaching you stuff because I'm sure they did and that's great if you feel like your eyes are open to new things Mm -hmm. I think that's valuable but like also not to say that those experiences are bad because there are plenty of people that go Mm -hmm. on those experiences come back and they're like wow I really want to make a difference right Mm -hmm. so it's all about how the person interprets that and like what they take away from it because there are plenty of people that go out and then their worldview is changed and then they want to make an impact in a way that actually works in Mm -hmm. those different communities and then finds organizations or different groups that they've met that are usually local run or something Mm -hmm. like that and then they do a lot of good and then there's also the ones that you see frequently like well trying to adopt a bunch of babies like you know so -hmm. it's not like saying those are all bad but unfortunately most of the times it comes out Mm -hmm. as not great yeah and I I would also argue that your self-empowerment and self-growth 
should not be achieved on the backs of less privileged people. Mm. Yeah. Like your self-empowerment is important, but you should be doing that without harming other groups. Yeah. Yeah. I think for anyone that's interested in international development or working in an international space, if you're applying for something, it's really important to question yourself first and be like, what can I offer that a local with similar qualifications can't? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, If like I, they're looking for someone that does like data management, Um, what can I offer that's better than what a local can offer and I think it's really important for us to think this way that we shouldn't be trying to go out and save the world um, and taking opportunities away from locals trying to better their own community Mm -hmm. so it's it's a big it's a big thing it's like what can you offer that the community can't offer itself Mm -hmm. yeah so I'm going to try and tie it back to um, how we try to do that in the creative arts right because mm-hmm. that's a lot of what you've done mm-hmm. and you mentioned how you did a little bit of work in storytelling mm-hmm. among Vietnamese refugees so can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like yeah so this project was very personal to me because my mom's a refugee from Vietnam um, she's ethnically Chinese so it's a bit complicated there but uh, in short she arrived in Denver after the fall of Saigon and um, my family really built themselves up from nothing so it was a very personal um, research to me and even though the refugees have been resettled here for a while you'd imagine the mental health have improved drastically but really it's not too much Uh, mental health isn't something that's addressed by the asian american pacific islander community at all it's Mm -hmm. stigmatized it's embarrassing um it means you're weak you're losing face taboo Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) yeah we have this thing where it's like you lose face and it means that yeah you lose like your standing right Mm -hmm. your reputation and having a mental illness is something like that so when you have a refugee that has undergone trauma from seeing things like rape i'm running away from people trying to shoot at them being displaced from their homes crossing an entire ocean where people are dying left and right that trauma itself doesn't go away very easily right. mm-hmm. and then you pair that with this fervent like desire to repress all mental illness in the community it's a really bad cocktail there is this uh one vietnamese old man who came into the hospital saying that he was having heart issues and the doctors um, gave him a look and said everything was operating normal and they're like oh maybe he's depressed or anxious so they used the scale that westerners normally use and they found that there was nothing wrong with him Mm -hmm. and then um i think they're doing some tests on his stomach Mm -hmm. and he went to the bathroom and jumped out of the window and killed himself (gasps) and so it these like mental health issues are definitely a problem within the community and the fact of the matter is we don't have the right tools to treat them at this moment mm-hmm. or we don't have enough of them yeah and it's a currently our western way of measuring mental health also doesn't apply to our communities because our communities we would be like oh my head really hurts my back ache whereas other people would be like i'm really sad like our we somaticize our symptoms mm-hmm. yeah so that project came from this need to really look into my community and see what can be done. And so something that I explored was storytelling. And it's something pretty common within our communities. That's how we pass on values, you know? I think oral history, mm-hmm. storytelling, yeah. they're so valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Especially since we don't really have as much written history as Westerners do. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about my family, they came from China and then uh, had to flee because of the Cultural Revolution. And they were in Vietnam and had to flee because of the Vietnam War. You don't carry historical documents with you throughout that. Mm-hmm. So the way we pass on what's important to us is through storytelling. 
And I know growing up, storytelling was really important for me to connect with my mother and like her world because I grew up in such a different one. And it wasn't until my mom presented at this panel I was hosting that I realized how powerful it could be. Um, this panel was just inviting some Asian Pacific Islander refugees to come speak to um, our club. And then I pushed my mom to come. She didn't want to. She was like, my English isn't that good. And um, like, yeah, my story is not that interesting. You know, this like the way that Asian moms sort of downplay everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, eventually, I got her to go and she told her story to a ton of students. And at the end, I asked her, you know, how, does it, how did it feel? And she was like, it felt good, you know? Mm-hmm. And she was like, it felt, it felt good. And it's like, I felt important because the younger generation wanted to know what I went through. Yeah. And like, I mean, there was a lot to like break down from like what she said, but overall, like what I learned from it is like the importance of like sharing your story to others and how healing that could be. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of like the start of it. And then through that, I explored how like narrative therapies and creative arts therapies and like sort of the balance between those two and how it could help the community. So have you found in your research, like how do they measure how effective it is or or is it even being used mm-hmm. more widely throughout different areas of the country or yeah narrative therapy is not very popular just in general creative arts therapies right. aren't as popular because qualitative data is really frowned upon in the scientific community mm-hmm. um but it is really important and like with creative arts therapy like there have been studies and there have been metrics that they've used to see if people have improved but overall it doesn't have like the breadth or the depth of like bigger scientific research that have like thousands of people participating and like have very clear-cut metrics and how to measure things mm-hmm. like a big issue with creative arts therapies too is maybe we can see there's improvement but we can't tell you why mm-hmm. right it's like yeah they did music and then they felt a bit better but why did they feel better and how can you measure that mm-hmm. it's really tough but personally and from what i've seen i do think creative arts therapy have like, a place within just anyone recovering from trauma or anyone trying to deal with something that's difficult for them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've definitely seen it more commonly in my research with internally displaced Syrians, mm-hmm. right? And they're going through the war and everything and particularly with children because sometimes children don't have the vocabulary to mm-hmm. fully process and express to a therapist like mm-hmm. this, this is what happened and this is how I feel and this is what I think that I need, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's hard enough for an adult to do that. Like yeah. I have a hard time doing that. <laughs> But they have like these art therapies. I, I don't want to say sessions because mm-hmm. it's more like a, it's like a school setting, right? And they have these kids come in and they do like drawings. They do like play enactments. And through that, mm-hmm. the therapists are able to get an insight on what's going on in these children's minds and emotions and then really tailor what they need based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the kids find enjoyment and mm-hmm. community, which I th- is super important mm-hmm. in mental health. Like hi- finding a community that you can walk into mm-hmm. is really important. And, and then being able to grow in that space is important because there's that foundation of trust, like we've been saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it allows people to express something difficult that they might not be able to in work. Mm-hmm. And it allows you... What I really like about storytelling is it allows you to look at your story in a more positive way and like to basically take ownership over your story so like for example saying that you know this happened to me and it was terrible saying something like that I went through this but I persevered mm-hmm. and I persevered because I'm strong mm-hmm. and I'm successful now because I was able to do this and really just reorganizing the story in your head 
as a story of empowerment instead of a story of loss. Um, so that's like narrative therapy, where you tell a story, but you sort of make it in a way where you focus on more positive aspects and you feel in control of what happened. I think that in general, it's a it's not really new, but it's kind of new in the sense mm-hmm. that there are more programs and everything for people to actually study music therapy, art therapy, and they can be people that specialize in these things now. So because they are more accepting mm-hmm. of qualitative data now than they were before, which is very behind because it's unfortunate that there's so much, all of this is the, what do we know, but we can't yet prove. And this is like mm-hmm. definitely that whole concept because it's a lot of things that are like, yeah, that's intuitive. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. That sounds right, but I can't prove it. So then I can't get funding for it. Mm-hmm. So then I can't actually do it even though everyone's like yeah yeah that's a great idea like definitely do that yeah like cool with what money (laughs) (laughs) because everyone's always like well we want to see the numbers yeah and then like when you do a project we wanted to see your monitoring and evaluation right yeah and then it's always difficult because how can i tell you how much this has impacted this personal individual's life just through numbers and it's like numbers are important of course but just in general it needs to be paired with other things yeah and i i think as we're talking i'm just thinking about how it's so ironic because i think when we learn about the histories of people that have gone through a lot of hardship Mm -hmm. i mean this weekend we spent a lot of time at the civil rights and human rights museum yeah and one of the things that really stuck out to me was the nonviolent protesters one of the things that they would do is they would sing Mm -hmm. and that was a marker like they would sing gospel and it was like really powerful and it was a way for them to be unified find empowerment right Mm -hmm. and i feel like there's countless histories of even just indigenous peoples or any group of individuals that had to go through a lot of hardship due to institutional racism or oppression Mm -hmm. where they found resilience through the creative arts absolutely like dancing like gospel music Mm -hmm. or just singing or whatever it is and oral storytelling is one of those things where i feel like it's one of those things where people in the scientific community may say oh that's not valid Mm -hmm. like how can you fact check that yeah but also that's how we have all All of our history all of our information is through word first because it's not like we had everything written since the beginning of time like yes there are some Mm -hmm. scratches on rocks but for the most part it's just words being passed down it's like this is this this is this and then we have what's left over from all of that Mm -hmm. and just how it's it's mostly verbal Mm -hmm. and i just think it's so interesting (laughs) so then we have this contradiction right like we know we know the power behind the creative arts like storytelling Mm -hmm. for example and how powerful that can be in terms of human resilience human growth healing all those Mm -hmm. terms but then we start saying okay how can we measure that Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden i think we are very quick to be like oh it's not measurable it's Mm -hmm. not very clear then it's not valid yeah and i'm like how do we how did we come to a point where we jump to that conclusion I mean, humans are more than numbers. We're not numbers. So. I am number one. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely been an interesting balance in my life because like, I currently work with data, so yeah. all numbers. So it's really interesting because I see the validity of numbers and like, the beauty of it and like how much it can tell you, but there is just more to numbers. Sometimes numbers in the questions that we ask don't have the right scope. A lot of times testimonial narrative therapies, when we do try to measure them, we do like specific checklists to see how much you are at risk or how much you're experiencing something. So that's usually what we do to check if people have improved throughout a process. However, like I was mentioning earlier, Asian American Pacific Islanders, we express mental health differently. So our tools right now that measure numbers don't even have the right scope to truly measure if this can be 
a great program for Asian American Pacific Islanders. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are based off of the our DSM mm-hmm. and also the Global North in general. Because I recently did a comparative analyses of the different scales for PTSD. They're all relatively the same. They're like, we are validating this because the DSM says this is the definition of PTSD. And you're like, that's great. Like, cool. (laughs) That's not really a validation study. And like, that's not validation. Um, And then they're like, well, this seems to work for the most most of us. So we'll just translate it. Like, okay, right. Like that. Sure. Like half of those terms don't even have something that's Mm -hmm. even translatable. Like there is no equivalent. Yeah. It's like it's just like one size doesn't fit all. You know, it's good that this works with some people, but it doesn't work for all people. So the numbers of this test cannot necessarily like even when you do the test, cannot necessarily be 100% valid mm-hmm. because the people taking the test can't relate to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, there have been like attempts to create better tools, uh, but it's just, I think it's just difficult because it's really easy for us to be like, we have this standardized method, um, as opposed to there needs to be a separate method, method for every community and every, yeah. every identity. But yeah. that's sort of it. Like if we yeah. do want to use numbers, they have to be very specific to yeah. each community. So it's really Which takes time yeah. and money that people, we don't have, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> obviously it also makes sense to make a standardized thing because otherwise yeah. how are you supposed to compare everything? But yeah. if you yeah. have like, here's part one that's standardized, here's part two that's customized, mm-hmm. right? So part one can be the comparative for all countries and then part mm-hmm. two could be like, here is what we will use for implementation for programming mm-hmm. and everything, specific. yeah. And then even the like location specific one can be used to validate whether or not the standard one even made sense in that right. setting. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it wildly different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I'm thinking like there are there is such a thing as a culture bound syndrome, mm-hmm. where there are certain conditions that people in that culture understand and have a word and diagnosis for mm-hmm. that don't exist outside of them. And one of those things in the Korean community mm-hmm. is it's called Hwapyeong, mm-hmm. and the the Chinese character for Hwa is fire, mm-hmm. and Pyeong is illness, mm-hmm. and I've heard my mom say this. She's like, I have hop young, right? And it's oh, it's yeah. literally like they describe it as having a fire inside you that's painful and like it results from a lot of stress and anger. Mm-hmm. And maybe if you want to use the DSM for that, you can say it's maybe like depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. but it doesn't clearly fit that diagnosis picture. Like it's, it's just not. <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah. not depression. It's not just anxiety. It's like this thing. And so it's, they call it a culture-bound syndrome and a mm-hmm. lot of different communities and cultures have that so I'm thinking like how like do you and put that in the scale let's say if we're studying the Korean community like mm-hmm. you know yeah so there there have been um, attempts for the Vietnamese American community to create a scale that is specific I think the most widely known one is the fan psychiatric scale and it basically number one it's in Vietnamese so that's already a plus and number two it uses Vietnamese idioms like what you're talking mm-hmm. about to describe certain symptoms like as opposed to like on a scale of one to ten rate your anxiety mm, which yeah. like your mom might not truly like, understand. i'm not anxious yeah this is just life right but yeah. you have hot air inside of you and she'd be like oh yeah i have hot air right yeah. <laughs> so it's there have been attempts to do that but i just think overall we look through mental health and like measuring it through a very western lens there's like a huge western paradigm of what it means to be ill and what it means to be healthy and from the very top if we look at it from this lens it's already going to be difficult to find numbers that might support it even qualitative data that, qualitative data that might um, make sense in this paradigm it's mm-hmm. just from the very top we have to look at it from a different paradigm which is really difficult because that is the hegemonic view that we have of this world and mm-hmm. that is like what we're taught in school 
Um, if you're doing, being a psychologist, it's the DSM-5. It's not mm-hmm. um, the band psychiatric scale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So there is a need there. So if anyone wants to go into <laughs> filling those gaps, <laughs> I, I want to, right? That's like... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. if there are any philanthropists out there that want to give money to that, that'd be super Please awesome. Fund all of us. Because <laughs> yeah. there is not a lot of funding going on for that whole... But there's such a mental huge health. need for it. There is such a huge yeah. need for it. But that's the problem is that a lot of people aren't going into it in the field so small and relatively new because it's mm-hmm. only recently being accepted in all of these different cultures because mm-hmm. for so long like earlier mentioned mental health is stigmatized in most other places right. like it's mm-hmm. I mean it's stigmatized here in the U.S. Right. it's stigmatized <laughs> everywhere mental right. health is not accepted yeah. Yeah, so exactly. it's only like oh like that's a problem so now people are starting to be like hmm yeah <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's like think about that but also let's not talk yeah. about it too much but then you're like what <laughs> yeah I think it's interesting how a lot of the methods that we know to be true from how we were raised and like culturally are not valid until the western paradigm is like oh okay maybe this does work yeah yeah but it's that's why I had that a struggle a lot with my paper where I was like oh like I know this and this and this to be true but I can't cite my mom right I have, yeah. <laughs> I have to cite an actual academic yeah. research which, paper which also comes back to oral history which because yeah. that's very that's relatively new I, I believe there's only like one or two programs that even teach mm-hmm. oral history in the U.S. Columbia has one of them that mm-hmm. I'm definitely aware of and at the time when I learned about Columbia's they were the only one so literally it just needs to have more people that are like we should make this more yeah. of a field that we can actually mm-hmm. go into and how do we train people to do it how do we actually make it more accessible because I mean that's the same way that global health happened was like all these people were like we should do something about this mm-hmm. right so that's also this I needs mean, to become part of that and also just sociology anthropology needs to be more accepted mm-hmm. as well yeah I think so. I mean it's oral histories are we understand they're valuable yeah. right and I I think like you said until it's validated by some some like western yeah. power then mm-hmm. then they're like oh yeah it's important I think yeah. I think we're starting to see a little bit more of that right mm-hmm. um like for so long historically and even now indigenous communities are thought to be just like i don't know primal mm-hmm. communities who yeah. don't know a lot but it's but scientists now are finding more and more like oh we should actually ask them questions because they've known this these things about like the environment mm-hmm. yeah for years <laughs> i think it's important <laughs> to not only include them in the conversation but actually allow them to have um power and allow them to make decisions and to basically ask these communities to be a part of the solution and like be a part of like helping everyone like come up with a way to um, better the environment or um, better mental health and things like that and just understanding that we shouldn't we're not here to steal knowledge yeah yeah so as someone who's done a lot of field work what's a practical way Mm -hmm. to give that support and empowerment to someone who does have that um, rich history and mm-hmm. you know storytelling or whatever that they can provide for their community. I think the first thing that like the most important thing when you end up in the field is you have to knock yourself down a few notches. Honestly, uh, I feel like a lot of people come in thinking they know better, mm-hmm. and you have to come in. You have to come in and be like, maybe I am an expert in this like particular like strategy technique, but that doesn't necessarily mean I know better than everyone else like you have to come in with a learning mindset and then just not treating them like they're lesser than you 
I think that's the main thing. And that's like one of the largest things that I see happening is that it's like, okay, maybe like I'll listen to you and then I'll take some of it that I like, right? Or, and use that in my research. Yeah. 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 And then it's also like if you talk down to them, then maybe they don't want to talk to you anyways, right? Like maybe why would they want to share their like sacred knowledge with you if you are just this young um, Western researcher who has no care for this community and their culture? Mm-hmm. So like I think coming in just to not be so prideful and then also building rapport with your community is key like building trust and to do that honestly I think you just need to put yourself out there you gotta be talking to people you gotta do things that they like to do um you gotta go to things that they like to go to and really just immerse yourself in the the culture which like as an anthropologist was very helpful for me to use those skills and that means like multiple things it's like if they like to get coffee at like 7 a.m then you should get your ass up and get coffee at 7 a.m right (laughs) or like if they like to play badminton or something else and you don't well you should give it a shot right you should really try to delve yourself into their lives and like from these things you'll pick up small things that you wouldn't pick up interviewing them formally Mm -hmm. um like a lot of the stories that we got from the students at Tiny Tunes and like the founders was actually um, like maybe after we did our formal interviews after like a long day after like training for a day where we would sit down and grab some beer and eat some food and we would just chat mm-hmm. and that's like really important in building relationships to have it so that people actually trust you mm-hmm. and I think that's a huge part um, in getting people to open up I'm so glad you said that community-based participatory research is mm-hmm. being sought after because mm-hmm. they're realizing yeah you can't just go in a community yeah that you don't even identify with even if you do right mm-hmm. you can't just go in and be like yeah i'm gonna get some good research some good data qualitative or quantitative mm-hmm. and then come back out and it's like okay that's valuable but it would be so much richer if you actually mm-hmm. build rapport if you made yourself useful if you are integrated in the community because the things that you wouldn't get in a formal interview that's an hour or two long you can get mm-hmm. from grabbing beers with them and just talking yeah and, and then after you have that relationship, they're more likely to like you. And mm-hmm. then what's really nice about it is like you no longer, there's no longer this line between you being this privileged researcher and them being um, the beneficiary. It's You're just sort of friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like you have so much to talk about that's really great <laughs> and valuable. So I really appreciate you spending this time with us just to give us the surface essentially yeah. of everything that you've done and that you are doing. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you for talking with us. Yeah. That was really great. Thank you. Yeah. And that's the episode. Thanks to Joey Ha for joining us in person. As a reminder, you can find her on Instagram at HelloJoey. Joey is spelled J-O-I-E. And please subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Your support helps us grow. You can also support us by becoming a member of our Patreon page. Susanna and I spend a lot of time making sure our information is correct, but there are only two of us, so if you catch something, please let us know. Feel free to reach out to either of us by emailing globalcaveat at gmail.com or to either of us on Instagram at cladalist and at sujani. And a special thanks to all the people that have to listen to us brainstorm and to Cordell Glass for producing our music.